Well, good morning, church family. Um, Open your Bible, if you have one, to John chapter number 7, the Gospel of John chapter number 7. We have been in a study for several, several weeks now as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, thinking about Jesus's invitation to come and see, right? We've been exploring his life. Uh, We've been reading about what he had, what he's done and what that means for us and what it looks like for us to come and see, explore Jesus, what it looks like to embrace him on his invitation to follow him. Listen, if you've missed any of that, um, you can go to our website or um, our YouTube channel or our podcast. All of those sermon sessions are on those. So if you are, you know, new today or it's your first time in a long time, you can certainly catch up at any point that you would like. But today uh, we find ourselves in John chapter seven. Listen, as you're turning there, I know most of you have been to some type of theme park. Most of you have been to a Six Flags or a Disney World or maybe a Jazzland. Anybody? Jazzland? Okay, maybe not. That's all right. Dollywood. Oh yeah, there it is. You're like, yeah, that's more my speed, right? Or maybe it was just some back road in Guntown. You're like, hey, it felt like a theme park, right? You with me? Uh, I know you can remember that feeling uh, whenever you knew that there was a drop about to happen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're on that roller coaster and in that moment when it starts clicking its way up, you're thinking, hey, is it too late to get off of this thing, right? Like, do you think somebody will stop it real quick and come out here with a ladder and let me get down? Because we know, right, what goes up must come down, right? Like we anticipate that ride that goes straight up and then drops you. You're thinking as it starts lifting you up and you can't even see people anymore. What was I thinking, right? Or that swing that pulls you up and you're like, I don't know when it's going to let me go, but I'm so far into the clouds. I can't see anything and I know it's going to happen. We know when we go up, we must come down. We anticipate the drop. We anticipate the fall. Well, in John chapter seven, Jesus is also giving us some things to anticipate. He's giving us some things to expect, but it's not a roller coaster ride. Instead, it's not that type of drop. The drop that Jesus is talking about is what we would call opposition. If we're going to follow Jesus, we can expect, just like a roller coaster going up, we can expect to come down. If we decide to follow Jesus, we can expect that opposition will come our way because we've decided to follow Jesus. In fact, bottom line, here's the truth. Opposition is not optional. Opposition is not optional. I was reading someone who was describing this scene in John chapter 7, and they compared it to Daniel's experience in Daniel chapter 6 when he was thrown into the lion's den. Many of you remember this childhood story. By the way, it's not just a story. It comes from Daniel chapter 6 in the Old Testament. Uh, It's not make-believe. It really happened. The king in Daniel's day said, if anyone will pray to someone other than me, their punishment will be to be thrown into the lion's den. Well, we know Daniel decides, you know what? I know it's going to happen. I can expect the opposition, not if, but when. If I pray to God, my, uh, my, my um, penalty will be that I will be thrown into the lion's den. And he, of course, prays to God, of course, gets thrown into the lion's den. But what we know is he doesn't die in the den of lions, right? Instead, this author wrote, it really wasn't Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, it was the lions that were in Daniel's den. You with me? Like ultimately, though we expect opposition, though as Christians, it's as if we're being thrown into the lion's den of this world. Here's what we know. 
God's the one who holds open the mouths of the lions, right? God's the one who's in control of it all. And when we choose to follow him, we can expect opposition. But listen, it's not surprising to him and it shouldn't be surprising to us. Though we expect it, we know that God controls it all. And listen, in John chapter 7, we encounter a moment of opposition, much like we did in John chapter 6. But this time, Jesus is going to show us a little bit about what we should do when opposition comes. Now, it's not exhaustive. There are other things that we do when opposition comes. But I want to show you some things as we expect what is to come. I want to show you some things that Jesus does that I think is helpful for us as well. So John chapter 7, you there? Raise your hand if you're there. All right, great. I'm glad you're there. We are, in fact, going to look at this entire chapter together. I know. Here we go, right? All right, first thing I want you to see about opposition. Number one, expect it, don't attract it. You with me? Expect it, don't attract it. Look at verse one of John chapter seven. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. Now I want to pause for a moment because here's what we know. We can expect opposition, but it doesn't mean we should attract it or invite it or go looking for it. It's going to come on its own, but it doesn't mean we need to do whatever it takes to go out there and find it in and of ourselves. Jesus shows us this. He continues ministry in Galilee. Why? Because he knows that the Jews are seeking to kill him in Judea. If he goes there, he's not sure, although I guess he is, he's Jesus, what will happen to him in those moments. And so instead, he continues ministry in Galilee. Now, it's likely referring to about six months of ministry between the Passover feast and and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we don't know everything that's happening during this specific moment of Jesus's ministry. In fact, later, the end of the Gospel of John, he tells us that we don't know everything that Jesus has done. He tells us there are plenty of other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Here's what we know. We know Jesus was always doing God's work, and because he was doing God's work, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus tells his followers they will experience trouble. He's not the only one. If we line ourselves up with Jesus, we can expect opposition too. Later in John 15, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Later in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. If you choose Jesus, those who hate him will also hate you. Suffering will come to those who choose to surrender their lives to Christ. Expect opposition. In fact, he's showing us a picture of this in the season in which he is in Judea. The Feast of Booths is at hand. Now, I'm not a, a, a Jewish festival specialist, and so I'm not trying to get too much into the details of Jewish festivals, but in this context, it will matter extremely because of what Jesus will say later. And so I want you to know that it's been about 18 months and since, since Jesus has been in Judea. At this point in time, when Jesus is about to go back to Judea, they are celebrating the Feast of Booths, or what many might call the Feast of 
of Tabernacles. Now, from my understanding, the Feast of Boots, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, was a feast that lasted seven days and was a celebration of how God took care of his people while they wandered in the wilderness after being freed from Egyptian bondage. The name Feast of Tabernacles or Boots came from the fact that they dwelled in tents during their wilderness exile. Now, when this celebration happened in Jerusalem, it was actually pretty cool. One of the things that they would do to commemorate this time or remember what God did was they would build all sorts of little tents and tabernacles all throughout the streets of Jerusalem. They would decorate them however they wanted. They would become their own little dwelling for seven days. It really sounds like a pretty cool uh, festivity. Now, it's also known as the Feast of the Ingathering, according to Exodus chapter 23. Not only did the feast remember the days of the wilderness wanderings, but it also commemorated the gathering of the Israelites into the promised land. So it celebrated the season of life where they're wandering in the desert as they're waiting to get to the promised land. It also celebrated that initial moment when they're all gathered to the place that God had promised them. It marked the end of the harvest season, harvest of fruits, oils, and wine. It's very similar to what we do at Thanksgiving. In fact, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, this is one of three pilgrimage festivals because every Jewish male was expected to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. There are two others. I'll give you bonus points if you know them. Passover, and Pentecost. Those are the three pilgrimage festivals. Now, what's interesting is that the feast held even more meaning after the exile, after the Jews were exiled from Israel. The feast looked forward to the time the Messiah would gather all the descendants of Abraham in a revived Hebrew nation. It would return Israel back to its glory. The feast was looking to a future Messiah to restore all things. Now, this is important in the context. You want to know why? That's what his brothers are hoping Jesus Jesus will do. That's why they encourage him. Leave here. Go to Judea. Show your disciples who you are. Stop working in the backwoods of Galilee in those small villages where no one can really hear about you. Go to the main stage. Go to Jerusalem. If you want to be known, what better time than the Feast of Tabernacles that's pointing to a coming Messiah who will revive a nation, who will be their king, who will rule with authority. If you are him, Jesus, why not go? interesting moment. Now, we know that his brothers really don't care about the fame of Jesus. They're really selfish motives, right? It could be that if Jesus really is king, then as, as his brothers, they get to be uh, some pretty key people, influential folks in the new kingdom, right? But what really is probably true is that they don't care about his fame as much as they cared about him being exposed as the fraud they thought he was. This is why John would say not even his brothers believed in him. Now, the word not and the use of the verb form of believed really gives us an indication that this means a continued obstinate refusal to believe. We know from the Bible it won't be till much later when some of his brothers actually place their faith in Jesus. But yet, as you think about this moment, them not really caring about who Jesus was, let that settle for just a minute. How sad is that reality in their lives. They lived with Jesus, grew up with Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teachings, yet they still chose their own way over his. They saw way more 
than we have the benefit of seeing, yet they continue to walk in disbelief. How sad is it for those who choose to live this way? May we pray that God would break people's hearts so that they would see him for exactly who he is. We say, Danny, why are you telling us all this? Because if his own family would be opposition to him, if the people who were closest to him would oppose what he's going to do, then friends, listen, we can expect it too. We know Jesus could have done plenty of mighty works. He could have gathered large crowds. He could have basked in their adoration. In fact, if he wanted that, he could have had it back in John chapter 6. Yet, listen to me, Jesus didn't want fame. He didn't want popularity. He wanted to do the will of God. He wanted to serve his father's purpose, not theirs, not even his own. If if it meant he would face adversity rather than adoration, he was still okay with seeking after God. Expect it, but don't attract it. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look at verse six. This is where it gets interesting. Brothers are all, yeah, Jesus, go, man. Show yourself. Be the king that people think you are. Reign with an iron fist. Bring us back to our glory days. And Jesus said to them, verse 6, my time has not yet come. Oh, right? A little anticlimactic there, right? We were hoping for something a little more. But your time, look at what he says, but your time is always here. Why? Look what he says. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. What's he talking about? Well, really, Jesus knows what will happen to him if he's not intentional about his ministry at this time. His brothers didn't have anything to worry about. Their time is always here. In other words, they can go and not be seen. No one's going to know whether or not they're there. Why? Because they're simply a part of the world with its standards and its traditions. But Jesus is different. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because Jesus stands in opposition to the standards of the world and against the standards of the religious system. He would be in danger of presenting himself at the wrong time. What do we know the religious authorities are going to do to Jesus by the end of the gospel? They're going to put him on a cross and they're going to crucify him. You think Jesus knew this was coming? Of course he knew it was coming, but guess when he didn't want it to happen? He didn't want it to happen in John chapter 7. Anybody want to guess why? Because there's more chapters to the gospel that need to get written, right? There's still training that needs to happen for his disciples. There's still miracles and works that needs to be done in people's lives. There's still preparation to take place so that God can receive the glory that is due him. Listen, Jesus was never on a suicide mission. He came intentionally to do what God wanted, his will, his way for his worship. It was never about Jesus. It was always about God. Listen to me. It was always about God's time timing above his own. If you're note-taking and you put expect it, don't attract it, I want you to put in parentheses God's timing. Why didn't he go up when his brothers went up? Because Jesus knew his time had not fully come. He knew that the crucifixion didn't need to happen then. It could happen later. In fact, in verse 10, it tells us, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Was Jesus lying? No. 
He knew what would come with caravanning with his brothers into Jerusalem. He knew the parties, the festivities. He knew the parade that would happen as he entered the town. Listen, that day would come, remember? Palm branches would be thrown out. Beatings would take place. Betrayals would happen. He would eventually climb on a cross and die for the sins of the world. But that time has not come. Instead, he's intentional about following what the Lord wants rather than what he wants. He's intentional about God's timing above his own timing. How many of us get stuck there? You said, Andy, what do you mean? How many of us get frustrated when God doesn't do something on our timetable? We have everything planned, everything ready, but God fails to do our bidding. He fails to do what we want when we want him to do it. Now think about this. Could it be that God is doing something greater than we realize? Could it be that the God who always existed may have a plan that you with your 20 years or 40 years or 80 years of wisdom simply doesn't understand? To follow Jesus means we give up control of our timetable and our purpose. We turn over the keys, the map, and the schedule to him. It means we put God in charge, not self. It means we don't go looking for something that's outside of God's timing. We don't go make a way on our own when God has a better way. I think about readings that we've done recently in the Old Testament, right? Did God want Abraham and Sarah to have a son that he would bless the nations through? Of course, but what did they do? They wouldn't wait on God's timing. They tried to do it on their own. That backfired, didn't it? I think about Jacob and the, and the blessing that he would get from his father. Did God want to bless Jacob and use him to advance the nation? He did. But did Jacob wait for God's timing? No. He lied and tricked and schemed. He did it his way. How often do we take matters into our own timetable instead of trusting God's timing above our own? Listen, expect opposition. Expect what's going to come against us. But don't go looking for it. Don't invite it. Don't go intentionally out of your way outside of God's timing to stir up trouble that never was meant to bring glory to God. It was simply meant to point people to you rather than the one that you're trying to serve. Friends, listen, expect it, but don't attract it. Let me show you the second thing Jesus shows us. Expect it, don't approve it. Or maybe like the word, don't allow it. You say, Danny, what are you talking about? Well, look at verse 11. Let's keep going. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. Who were they looking for? Jesus. Did Jesus know that? Yeah, that's why John told us the Jews were seeking to kill him, right? Like Jesus already knew what was happening. And here's what they said. Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Apparently the crowds that quickly betrayed him back in John 6, they're still buzzing around Jerusalem. Where is this guy who works miracles? Where is this guy who brings the dead to life? Where is this guy who makes the blind see and the mute speak and the deaf hear? Where is this guy that we hear so much about? Yet they'll only mutter about it because they don't want what's going to happen from their leaders. And so look at this. This is where it gets interesting. Doesn't mean that we never experience opposition. We certainly expect it, but though we don't attract it or go looking for it, we certainly stand when it's there. Look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast. He didn't go in the beginning, but here it is in the middle. Jesus went up, in, went up into the temple and began 
teaching. Listen, he didn't try to hide from what he knew was going to come. Instead, he waited for God's timing so that he could do it according to the way that God wanted him to do it. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're so confused. They're marveling at the authority of Jesus, who now stands in their temple, not afraid, not scared, not hiding, but boldly standing on God's truth. By the way, if you're note-taking right, expect it, don't approve it, or allow it. I want you to put in parentheses, God's truth. You with me? We certainly want to trust in God's timing. You know what else we want to trust in? God's truth. If it's for him, about him, in him, pointed to him, absolutely we want to find ourselves there. Listen, they are amazed at his teaching. This isn't the first time. Luke chapter 4 is the same thing. He possessed authority. They were astonished at his teaching. Mark chapter 6, same thing. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Think about it. He's just a peasant from Galilee. He's the son of a carpenter. They know this kid. They watched him grow up. He didn't go to our schools. He wasn't trained by our experts. How can he teach such truths and do it so skillfully? Well, Jesus answered them. Verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Listen, they didn't know where Jesus was taught because they didn't know the one who taught him. It wasn't their seminaries or their rabbis. He was taught by God. By the way, the very one that they were unwilling to follow. I love this moment where Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. It's like Jesus is saying, okay, go ahead. Put my teaching to the test. It's like he's challenging his listeners. If you think I'm not who I say I am, then why don't you test it? It makes me think what one author wrote. It says, here and there is a man, a woman, a teenager, a boy, a girl, who dares to stake their lives on Christ. What happens when they do? It works. You say, Danny, what do you mean? The Lord's teaching, when put to the test, makes the drunken sober, the dirty clean, and the crooked straight. It cleanses society, redeems the individual, transforms lives, makes people godly and Christ-like. That claim can be made by no other philosophy or theory or religion on earth. Jesus is saying, I'm not just teaching for I mean, I'm not just teaching by God, but for God. He wasn't seeking his own glory, but God's glory. He was always about the Father's business, not his own. And they would know if they would actually listen and do what he says. But I want you to see this, verse 19. Here's where it gets serious about expect it, don't approve it, right? You're not going to look for it. You're not inviting it. You're not trying to stir it up where it's not. But when it's there, what do I do? Well, if it's in God's timing, then you always stand on God's truth. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, watch what Jesus does. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? You know what he's saying? 
He's saying, you want to punish me because you think I broke the law, but you want to punish me by breaking the law. The law says don't murder, and now you want to murder me, right? Like this doesn't add up. And so the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Clearly they forgot just previously in John chapter 5 when they were trying to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And so Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now I want you to focus for a moment. Jesus is talking about something very specific. In their time, it was a law to do any work on, uh, it was illegal to do any work on the Sabbath. That was one of their laws. To circumcise a male-born child, that would have been illegal according to the law if you were going to do it on the Sabbath. But because it was also a law to circumcise your child on the eighth day, if their circumcision day was the eighth day and that also happened to be a Sabbath, they would ignore the Sabbath law in order to abide by the circumcision law. See the issue? See the conflict? Well, Jesus is now looking at them and going, if you'll suspend the law for something that supersedes it, right? Something that's greater than that law, circumcision, then why would you not allow someone's total body healing to supersede the law? Here's what Jesus is doing. He's standing on God's truth even when it's not popular. He's standing on God's truth even when it's going to create more opposition. You say, Danny, why is that important for us? Because we know that we can expect opposition. But that doesn't mean we attract it and go invite it and go find it and stir it. No, no, no. But we can't expect it. So when it happens, do we hide? No. We don't approve it. We don't allow it. You know what that means? We stand on God's truth, even if it means people won't like the truth. Are you with me? Now, did Jesus do it ugly? Did Jesus try to start a fight? Was Jesus slapping people around? Of course not. What's beautiful about this moment is the way in which Jesus does this. He tells them, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. He's trying to teach them. He's giving them a moment to say, listen, you've been hypocritical before. You've made mistakes in the past. Your teachers have told you the wrong thing as they stood in this very place in the temple where Jesus now stands teaching. But He's not going to go with them just because it's the popular opinion. Instead, he's going to teach them what's right. Don't be self-righteous. Don't think you've got it all figured out. Don't think you're better. No, 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 no. Listen, you're missing the point. And he teaches them the truth. I love how Jesus corrects their sin. He exposes it. But listen to me. He doesn't leave them in it. He exposes it in order to end it. Friend, he wants to do that for each of us who will seek his guidance, who will surrender our lives over to him. His patience with these crowds, by the way, his patience with you and his patience with me is mind-blowing. Think about this. They had murder in their hearts but Jesus had mercy in his. Should that not be the same way 
that we don't approve, we don't allow, shouldn't that be the same way that as we expect opposition, we still stand on God's truth, not to hate people, but to love people, to point them to the one who matters most. Now listen, I got a little side note here, not that I have time for that. You can't stand on God's truth if you don't know God's truth. You with me? If you don't spend time with Jesus, how are you going to be ready when the time comes to speak for Jesus? You with me? And so Jesus in this moment, look, expect it. Don't approve it. Don't allow it. Stand on God's truth. Let me show you the third thing. So we got to hurry up. Expect it. Don't avoid it. Expect it. Don't avoid it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We, we don't have time to read all these, but watch this. Verse 25. Look at it with me. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, this, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, that's not true. They have prophecies about where Jesus is going to come from, right? I mean, they're a little confused in this moment. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. Obviously, Jesus can hear their hearts, right? But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So watch this. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? If you keep going in verse 32, guess what happens? The Pharisees send some officers to arrest Jesus, and then he tells them, listen to this, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me because where I am, you cannot come. Now watch this. Here they go again. They said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot go? If you jump to verse 40, it's still happening. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Thought they just said they didn't know where Jesus came from, right? It says, so there was a division among the people over him. I want you to hone in on that. There was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on them. Listen, a little bit further down, the Pharisees asked the officers, they say, why didn't you arrest Jesus? And the officers themselves said, no one ever spoke like this man. We're kind of starting to believe him a little bit, right? And the Pharisees are angry. They're like, we understand it from the crowd. They're a bunch of hillbillies, but we thought you would know what we're talking about. Then a few verses later, Nicodemus, one of their own shows up and says, wait a second. Shouldn't we judge this man according to our law? Shouldn't we hear his learning first before we just say what it is? And then they respond, do you believe in him too? Right? They keep asking these questions over and over and over. Who is Jesus? Friends, can I let you in on a secret? Every single person on the face of the planet cannot avoid this question. Who is Jesus? You may want to. You may say, Danny, you know what? When it comes to these kind of things, I just, you know, I don't want to speak up. 
I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. So you know what? I'll just be neutral. I think Jesus is cool. I also think other things are cool. I like church, but that's not for some people. Listen, you can't ride the fence when it comes to Jesus. Expect opposition. Friends, listen to me. You can't avoid it. You are on one side or the other, whether you want to be or not. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who accept Jesus, and there are those who reject Jesus. You will be one of them. So, like these crowds, he's a prophet. He's a good man. No, he's creating trouble. We should arrest him. No, we shouldn't arrest him. We should kill him. No, we shouldn't kill him. All these questions revolve around this, and you too must answer it. Who is Jesus? You can't avoid it, friends. You may want to, but you can't. Have you answered that question. Listen, if you're note taken, you put number three, expect it, don't avoid it. Here's what I want you to put in parentheses. God's team. T-E-A-M. God's team. You want to know why? Because you're either a part of it or you're not. Who is Jesus? Last one. I know you're like, Danny, why are you still talking? Okay, I'm getting there. Okay. We're covering an entire chapter, by the way. This is beautiful. Watch this. Number four. Jesus certainly didn't attract it, didn't approve it, even though he expected it. He never avoided it. Each of us will have to choose. Expect it, don't avoid it. Number four, expect it, don't accept it. Expect it, don't accept it. There is a better way. You say, Danny, what are you talking about? Go back to verse 37. I want to bring this entire festival full circle. Why is it important that Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles speaking in the temple about who he is? Here's why. I want to show it to you. Verse 37. Look at it. On the last day of the feast, they call this the great day, the day of convocation. Some call this the day of the, of the feast of boots. It's the final day, and they give it a special name. On this day, when things are wrapping up, Jesus stood up and cried. Listen to what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John gives us a little note here. This he said about the spirit. He's talking about the spirit of God, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But when he leaves, he's going to send his spirit to fill his People. Now, I've always been a little confused by Jesus' statements in this context. Now, it's not the statements themselves because it's similar to what he said to the woman at the well back in John chapter 4. We know that Jesus will be like living waters, a well that does not run dry in our very souls. That's not the problem. But I have been confused about the context in which Jesus says it. Now, we've been talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, and now Jesus shouts out that he's the living water. They're in disagreements. There's division among the people. Who is he? Who is he not? Jesus hasn't went yet because he's not ready to show himself. His time hasn't come, but then he goes, and he's standing on God's truth, and he's preaching to them uh, what needs to be preached to them. And it's like, okay, I get it, the festival, the confusion. Some people hate him. Some people love him. And then, boom, seemingly out of context, Jesus stands up. I am the living water. Come to me and you will never 
thirst. It never seemed to fit the moment. But understanding the festival helps us understand why Jesus says these words. Let me, let me help you with this. I'm, once again, no Jewish festival expert, but I did read that during the Feast of Tabernacles, each morning, at least the first seven days, not necessarily on the final day, but in the first seven days, each morning, a priest would go to the Pool of Siloam and he would collect water in a golden pitcher and it would be brought back to the temple and it would be poured into a silver basin on the altar as an offering to God. Now, there are different variations to what would happen in this ceremony. I read from someone that when this was happening, a priest would recite Isaiah 12, 1 through 2. Here's what that says. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now, isn't it interesting that they would be reciting something about salvation when Jesus is standing in their midst? Okay, key in. I also read that the congregation would chant or sing Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Here's what they would, here's what they would chant. With joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. I also read that while the water is being poured on the altar, a choir with flutes would sing Psalms 113 through 118, or what we know as the Hallel. The ceremony, okay, this is why all this is happening. The ceremony was a way to thank God for the water. It would be a prayer to ask God for rain for their future crops, and it would also be thankfulness in remembering how God provided water from a rock when his people were in the wilderness. However, I love this moment. Stay with me. You're like, Danny, why are you giving us all this? There's a point. Stay with me. The ceremony was much more than just a celebration of what God had done and hopefully will do for the crops in the future. According to one expert, here's what he wrote. The rabbis taught that this water-drawing ceremony was more than simply a request for winter rains. It was to illustrate the days of messianic redemption when the waters of the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all of Israel. That water was a symbol. What was it a symbol of? The Spirit of God being poured out. What does Jesus say? If you're thirsty, come to me. I am the living waters. Think about this. They were celebrating Jesus and missed him when he was standing right in front of them. In fact, when Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 12, 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, the word translated salvation is the word Yeshua. You know what that is in Jesus' day? It's his name, Jesus. He is the salvation that they were looking for. One commentator put it this way. I love it. Listen to this. As Moses crushed the rock, so water would pour out. So Jesus was crushed, so the Spirit could be sent forth. He returned at length to his home on high, and he sent the Holy Spirit to take his place on earth. The Holy Spirit filled the disciples. On the day of Pentecost, the rivers began to flow. The church was born. Thousands were saved. That ever-flowing river flows still. Those 
who come to Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is abundantly able to fill them and pour out his blessing to others. This is why Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Listen, what was to come? Not yet. This isn't his time. This isn't his hour. Hour doesn't mean time on a clock. Hour means season. He knows that when the season comes, when he dies on the cross for the sins of the world, everything will be different. He will be ushering in a new era. Nothing in history will ever be the same. And through his death and resurrection, he has sent us his spirit to live inside of us like a river of living water. Listen, friends, there is a better way. We don't have to accept the way of opposition. We can choose Jesus. Expect it. Don't accept it. Now watch it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Watch this. Verse 53. Look at how it ends. All this conversation is over. All the commotion of Jesus in town at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus just stood up and said all these words. The Pharisees are fighting. The officers are fighting. Nicodemus is fighting. All the people are divided. Now look at verse 53. They went each to his own house. You say, Danny, why are you closing with that statement? Well, you know what this made me think of? It made me think of those kids like in the backyard when they get mad and they're like, you know what? I'm gonna take my ball and go home. You heard that before? I, I feel like that crowd is in a moment where they gotta make a decision. Will I take my ball and go home, have it my way, or will I follow after Jesus? You know what I think is happening in all of this discussion? Yeah, opposition, expect it, right? It's coming. But at the end of the day, we know way better than they did because we're on the other side of it. We know that when Jesus came, he came to do the work of God. We know that he was following after his father's will as he would climb on a cross and die for our sins. We know that his death means life for us. We know that when he resurrected and went to be with God at the right hand of his father, that he would send his spirit to fill us with rivers of living water. We know what Jesus did. We're in a way better place than they were. But the question's still true for us today. Who is Jesus and will I follow him? Listen to me, friends, each of you in just a few moments, you're gonna pack up your stuff and you're gonna go to your own house. Will you go to your own house knowing that you wanna follow Jesus for the rest of your days? Or will you go to your own house packing up your stuff, bringing your ball and leaving because you want no part of it? Friends, right now, there is always a division when it comes to Jesus. You want to know why? Because you have to choose a side. Will you follow him or will you reject him? Friends, that question is here again. What about it? Do you know Jesus and do you follow him? Listen, if you don't know him, just a moment, I'm going to go back in that lobby. I'd love to take my Bible and tell you how you can begin a relationship with Christ. If you do know him, have you been following him or have you been doing your own thing your own way? Are you like the brothers who are just like looking for Jesus for something special, but you haven't really committed? Listen, I don't know where you are today, but I know God's demanding a response from you. So what is it, friend? What does God want to do in your life today? Will you follow Jesus? Who is he to you? Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you. Jesus, you're awesome.
Thank you so much.